If you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 7, we're going to go through the entire chapter, but it's so much scripture, I'm going to read a little bit and then I'm going to explain some. Would that be all right? I don't know why speakers always, yes, Christian's like, no, it's not all right. Again, security barred the doors, don't let them out. We're reading the scripture. Speakers always do that where they ask rhetorical questions to the audience and you're like, you respond, but you know your vote doesn't count. It's not a democracy, people. I, I prepared the thing, and so we're jumping in. Acts chapter 7, I'll read a few verses, then I'll elaborate more. The message today is called Killing the Messengers. Killing the Messengers, and you'll find out why soon enough. So let's go uh, do a little bit of background. There is a servant leader by the name of Stephen. The early church is growing in numbers and all kinds of ministry opportunities. And so the apostles, frankly, just can't handle it anymore. And so they do their own little growth track in city groups like we do here. Uh, they just didn't call it that back then. But they onboard different servant leaders, mobilize them. And there's one guy named Stephen. Stephen is important. He is full of wisdom. He's powerfully telling people about the, the message of God. He is serving his fellow brethren. However, the religious government at the time didn't like this spread of Christianity, which is really just taking over. And so they arrest him and they bring all kinds of false charges against him. They slander him, they insult him, they make up lies about him to be able to discredit him. So we're picking up uh, in Acts chapter 7, and he's basically going to stand up in front of this court to be deposed. He's going to give his testimony and his, uh, his answer to all these lies that they've said about him. So we'll start off in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this, Stephen replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran, he said, Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. Now, uh, what he's basically doing is he's going to build some common ground and he's be like, Hey, brothers, we got the same father, Father Abraham. From him came Isaac, and from him came Jacob, who would wrestle with God and be renamed Israel. This would happen about 4,000 years ago from our day, 2,000 years from our day. And so he's going way back into the very origin story of Israel to gain common ground and be like, I'm one of you and you are one of me, but let me craft a little history into my narrative. And so we're just warming up. The next verses, he goes in to Joseph. So because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, this will be the son of, uh, let's see, Abraham, then it's Isaac, then it's Jacob. Jacob's going to be the father of the tribes of Israel. And one of those is Joseph. So the patriarchs, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, end up selling Joseph into slavery to the Egyptians. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. So what I want you to gather from this is Joseph is rejected by his brothers. He was rejected by his brothers, yet it was only through that rejection, sold into slavery, left for dead, then he climbs up by the hand of God on his life to become the second highest ranking member in all of Egypt. Egypt kind of ruled the world there. Uh, at that time. They were, in, they were top dog around the world. And somehow Joseph becomes like number two in the kingdom. Holy cow. But it was through this divine appointment where Joseph was able to save his brothers from destitution, from starvation when a famine struck the land. And so check this out. What man meant for bad, God meant for good. And so it was through the rejection of Joseph that he also became the savior of Israel. Hold on to that because that's an important theme. Buckle up. We're going to the next verses. We're going to skip to verses 23. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. 
He saw, and by the way, we're jumping forward like 400 years. So this was like 2,000 years before. Now we're about 1,600-ish years before. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Little background, though Joseph was number two in Egypt and they're doing well and Israel's treated well, there became a new pharaoh that didn't remember Israel and they end up going into slavery for 400 years, suffering in slavery. That's quite a demotion. It's like, favorite of the king, now you and all of your people are slaves. So, not going super well. Uh, But Moses appointed to a higher position in Egypt, was able, kind of like Joseph, to do something good. Now, picking back up, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they didn't. This is the same Moses. Oh, I I jumped forward. I'm sorry. Go back. Very good. My bad. Uh, Let's see. Negligent uh, fire there. All right. So Moses, just like Joseph. I'm a gun guy. Moses was rejected just like Joseph was. He was rejected by his people, and yet he'd become the savior of Israel. It'd be Moses who would lead his people out of Egypt in or toward the promised land. So he gets them out of slavery. Then they get backed up against the the, um, Red Sea. Looks like they're going to annihilate. And again, the people reject Moses yet again, saying it'd be better if we just stayed in Egypt rather than get slaughtered right here. Then he's delivered, uh, Moses delivers them through by the hand of God. Then at the base of Mount Sinai, again, they reject God and they reject Moses again. Then when they're hungry in the desert, they reject Moses, they reject God again. Then when they're thirsty in the desert, reject Moses, reject God yet again. Then they've got supernatural food from heaven, but they want a little bit of variety. And so they want to spice it up. Hey, God, give me some cooler food. Give me something better. And so they reject God and they reject Moses yet again. And so there's a theme that Stephen in his defense is playing out, right? It's the person who is the messenger of God, who is sent to you, you reject, and then they become your savior anyway. You reject the messenger and the messenger was actually your savior all along. Now, in verse 35 through 37, there's a prophecy of Moses. Now, again, this is way before Christ, a millennium and a half before Christ will visit us. He says, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? God did, by the way. He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, though the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. This would be Jesus. This is Emmanuel, God with us, who would be rejected by his brothers and become the savior of all people. It happens over and over again. And so Stephen, in his defense, is showing the religious leaders a very unpopular but very obvious truth. Here, he's been playing kind of nice here. Now you're going to feel a tempo change. And where Stephen is in front of all these people who hold his life and future in his hands, look at the the change that takes on him. Here you go. Then... Not exactly how to win friends and influence people here. Stephen says, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. We have one more. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. And then all the religious leaders were like, oh, we repent. We're so sorry. (laughs) Our bad, yo. (laughs) No, 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 that's that's not what happened. That's not what happened. But the messengers of God are, are, are over and over rejected. Back in the times of Jacob and Joseph through Moses, until Jesus himself comes. Before God sent messengers, and then he himself put off, his, uh, put off 
His glory and came to be one of us as He'll directly come. Uh, so the question I have is, is, how do we keep from rejecting the true messengers of God? It seems like God's people, God is always trying to communicate and speak, and yet He sends somebody, we reject them, and still worse, we'll accept false teachers. And so what I want to do now with our time is I want to talk through three different ways we can keep from rejecting the true messengers of God. How do you know who's really from God? How do you know what His true messengers are? And then I want to talk about how to recognize, here's four different ways where we can recognize uh, the false messengers of God, right? That would be a good use of our time, correct? Rhetorical question, pretend like you have input. Yeah, Pastor Joe, that's great. All right, very good. First thing in recognizing a true messenger of God is we recognize that their appearance isn't necessarily what we would go for. Of, uh, of us, we value the things of this world, don't we? We like titles and we like pomp, we like wealth. But I'll tell you, the real prophets of the Old Testament of Jeremiah and Isaiah, Ezekiel, John the Baptist, Jesus himself, you didn't find the true messengers of God in the most beautiful, ornate robes. They didn't have the amazing wealth and the hats of our popes. They wandered the earth as if they were not in love with the things of this world, right? The true messengers of God are more in love with God and the things of heaven than the things of this earth, and it shows. So even if they did have wealth, you would know them because wealth passes through their hands like sand on a beach. It just goes through it in their generosity. They get it, and then they give it, and they're happy in doing so. They're not hoarding, correct? And so this is what we see of one thing with the messengers of God. It's kind of the appearance. Just check them out from a distance, the appearance of them. Now, this isn't very telling because this can be really, really tricky and we can get it wrong, but at least appearance will be a bit of a clue. Sound good? So don't just walking around and judge by the way, uh, you know, the outside shell looks like. That's how we can get into some severe trouble because we can get it wrong so oftentimes. Remember, it's not the outward, side, uh, outward part that we judge, but God judges the heart. And so we have all kinds of outward appearances and people are called, some people are wealthy and they're called to minister to the wealthy, but we do it different way in great generosity and humility. And some people are called to different stations of life and then everything in between. And so you got to be real careful when judging by appearances, right? But on its face, I can't help noticing how the true messengers of God were set apart from those who love the world. And so the appearance, it's not case closed. But let's call it at least a clue. Got it? If you've got a fleet of jets and, and sport cars, you're probably a little too in love with this world. That's fair, right? Yep. It is fair. Uh, the second thing, how can we know that we're not rejecting a true messenger of God? This is better. It's their message is one of sin and repentance. That's the way that we do it. Um, it oftentimes we preach a good news gospel God loves you, but we leave off the bad news, which gives it the whole context. Yeah, God loves you. That, that, that's the New Testament understanding, but bereft of the Old Testament context so that that makes sense, right? And so it's really, really important that we recognize the messengers of God are always bringing with them some news that you don't like. If the messenger is saying stuff that you like and there's nothing in their message that you don't like, that's not a true messenger of God. What did they do? What did Stephen just say about what they did to the prophets? They killed all the prophets. Remember Jesus, the most loving, generous, kind, servant-hearted man to ever walk the earth was murdered. They hated him. People really loved him or they really hated him. Why? It's because his message was one that they couldn't bear. Some of the stuff they said he really liked and the other stuff that made him so mad they wanted to kill him for it. Make no mistake, a true messenger of God is telling us that we are sinful and that God is furious with our sin. Think about what hell is, but eternal burning passion against sin forever. That's how serious sin is to God. It's not cute. It's not small. 
God really, really despises sin. He is of infinite holiness. His eyes are of too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrongdoing, and he will by no means clear the guilty. I just strung together three uh, uh, scriptures from the minor prophets there, packing it all in. God does not think our sin is cute. Uh, moving on, uh, people will love to follow these true messengers, but they'll also hate them. These are the folks where you can recognize, uh, I think it's in Matthew 6 or 7, it's one of those. I'm going to go with Matthew 7, a little Kentucky windage, shooting from the hip, scripture memorization there. Jesus says, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so they did to the false prophets. We talked about this in a sermon before where we were talking about being slandered. And if everyone thinks you're just doing super great, no enemies, no one attacking you, it's because you're nothing like Jesus. You're nothing like Jesus. If no one hates you without reason, without reason, if no one's slandering you, that means the enemy of this world doesn't see you as an enemy. You're an ally. You are not a threat. That's why you're not being persecuted. That's why you're not being censored. That's why you're not being yelled at and losing friends and family who won't speak to you. It's because you're not telling them the offense of the gospel. You have removed the offense of the gospel. You're nothing like Jesus when everyone loves you. He was murdered because he was hated without cause. All right, anyway, uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. So go back and watch that uh, sermon online. We're on YouTube now, and that message is called Slandered. What did we call that? Slandered? Because of slander. There was slander stuff in there, so we called it Slandered. We're brilliant. We're banging on all cylinders at Grace City Church, Rome. You are welcome. The third way we can keep from rejecting the true messengers of God is we observe their way of life. And whereas the first thing I said, appearances, that's kind of a weak left-handed throw. You know, that's not a very good one. The message of, hey, they're preaching, they're saying sin and repentance. You've offended a holy God. You need to beg for forgiveness and receive salvation through the blood of Jesus for forgiveness of your sins. That's what you should do. That's what you should do. Uh, the message is one of sin and repentance and following Jesus. That's how we see the true messengers of God is by their message. So appearance, message, the final way, this one's really good. And that's their way of life. Way of life. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. And I want to describe the life of an authentic messenger of God. A true follower, this is the hallmarks. They genuinely love people. They're not pretending to. They're not just being nice. They're not flattering. They genuinely love people. And here's this. This we're not so good at. They really hate evil. They're not just going to be like, oh, who am I to judge? No, evil's evil. That's awful. They're going to speak out how evil is our world. Browse social media. And if all what you see doesn't move you to action and righteous indignation, the truth of God is not in you. There's uh, Romans 12 will say, love what is good and hate what is evil. Hate what is evil. It's part of goodness. Goodness doesn't like evil. Evil doesn't like goodness. Very good. Uh, hold fast to what's good. Love one another with brotherly affection. We're loving each other and there's a special bond between church people. Between those who are truly saved, we can get together, instantly click with each other, and there's some kind of Jesus in me sees Jesus in you, and we shortcut years of get to know each other, chat about the weather, small chit-chat, and we instantaneously become brothers. And I don't know how else to explain this to the world who's never experienced what Jesus brings us into, but there's a special love for the brothers that the world just doesn't know about. They're lonely and they don't experience even a microcosm of the deep wealth of rich relationship that you and I get to experience. And frankly, we take for granted. There is a rich brotherly affection. We're outdoing each other and showing honor, respect. We are passionate, not slothful and zero, fervent in spirit. If you find somebody who's just, just bump on a log... That, that, that's not marks of the Holy Spirit. I just thought of an old joke by Charles Spurgeon, and I've never known where to put it, and it's horrible. Uh, but I want to tell it to you. Does that sound good? Yeah. You're like, yeah, now i got full audience participation. Yeah, inappropriate joke in church. Don't mind if I do. The great Charles Spurgeon, 
once-in-a-generation level communicator. He's a 19th century pastor over in England, and he was talking about this type of pastor who didn't have passion, who didn't have zeal, or this type of messenger of God, this type of Christian. Christians, tell me, they should be passionate, right? You should be passionate about the things of God, right? What about when a minister isn't? And so he felt like it was just such, such an outrage when somebody holds the mysteries of God and they get up there just dry, Bueller, Bueller, love God, Bueller. You know, just, bro, wake up. And so Spurgeon, upset about these dry pastors, remarks, dry pastors are, make the best martyrs. They're so dry, they burn well. <laughs> Is that terrible? That's terrible. Don't judge me. Spurgeon did it. Spurgeon did it. Not me. I'm just telling you. It's just, I'm the messenger of this right here. It just, just passed through. I'm the mailman, so don't get mad at me. But uh, how many of you are going to look up Spurgeon? I'm like, I am going to read sermons and lectures by Charles Spurgeon. Fantastic theologian, incredible pastor and man of God. So anyway, we are not slothful in zeal. We're fervent in spirit. We serve the Lord. We rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation. We're constantly in prayer. We're people of prayer and joy and, and hope. We contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. If someone's not generous, they're just not followers of Jesus. That's it. That's how you recognize them. They are generous. They're always giving. They're hospitable. They're showing hospitality to others, taking care of them. Uh, they bless those who persecute them. They bless and don't curse them when they're insulted and reviled, ridiculed, betrayed. They don't repay wrong for wrong. Instead, they repay good or uh, wrong with good. They rejoice with those who were pumped up. You got a celebration? Christians want to actually genuinely, excitedly rejoice with you. And when you're brokenhearted, we will get down in the dust and weep with you deeply. We care. And so that's in the highs and in the lows. Christians are there for you. We live in harmony with one another and it goes on and on. But I'm just basically carving out some marks of the Christian life that frankly the world doesn't do. Who loves their enemies except Christians? Who has joy in the midst of suffering? Your life is falling apart and you can still pray to Jesus and not lose your religion and your faith on that. You can still stay anchored to a peace that transcends all understanding and a hope that endures all these difficulties. That's the mark of a Christian. And so you know a true messenger of God, not just appearances, but by their message of sin and repentance and their way of life, right? their way of life. That's how we recognize some of the true messengers of God. And this is what set the prophets apart. Not in wealth and robes and riches and titles, but in a beautiful life that looked like Jesus. And with a message that called people away from sin and to following Jesus. That's how you do it, right? Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to spot out the false messengers. There's a place in 2 Timothy. Let me get there. 2 Timothy, is it chapter 4? Yes, 2 Timothy 4. We put it on the screen. That's how awesome we are, Grace City Church. I need the words, boom, words on the screen. You're welcome. Here we go. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, that's a disciple. He's a young pastor at the time. And he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Look, he's not just being like, encourage. I mean, there's the good stuff and the bad stuff. Exhortation is like encouragement and rebuke. That's the stuff that people get all upset about. And he's saying he's challenging them to preach the word because preaching the word is actually quite hard when you do it faithfully. That means I'm going to stand up here if I'm going to be a faithful preacher to you and I'm going to say things that you really like. Yeah, all right, John. Yeah, tell me more of that. And then I'm going to kick you in the teeth with stuff that you really hate. You're like, I did not like that at all. I'm like, me neither. I didn't like it either. I'm sinful like you. <laughs> I'm terrible. I'm trying to get better. But that's what the mail says. And I am the mailman. That's the job. I am just the mailman. 
You're not mad at me, actually. You're actually male, mad at the words of God. And you're mad at the words of God because He's good and we're not. Evil doesn't like good and we've still got it in our hearts, don't we? And so it's that piece of you when you feel like, oh, I don't like what he said there. I probably don't either. <laughs> but here we are trying to become more and more like Jesus. Now check it out. He says then, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. We're in that time right now. But they have itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. False, uh, in the last days, there's going to be false teachers, many who come in the name of Christ, many who hold themselves out to be an authority, a messenger of God, right? And we accept them and we reject the real messengers of God. Here's one thing, uh, and this is under the name of Christ. There's something called a prosperity gospel. How many of you, show of hands, how many of y'all have heard of the prosperity gospel? It's all around the room, the prosperity gospel. Now, it's a misnomer to call it the gospel. There's no gospel but one, so it's really the prosperity heresy. And what's the prosperity heresy say? It means no suffering. If you love God and you have enough faith in God, God's going to take care of you. God's never going to let anything bad happen to you. There's no suffering. If you have enough faith, you just name what you want. Law of attraction kind of thing. Name it and you claim it and it's yours. And if it doesn't go that way, you got to have more faith. So if you get cancer, that's your fault. you got to, you got to name it and claim it and you got to believe. And you're like, no, God has called us to suffer. And as we suffer a completely different way, that the world understands in our suffering and our uh, godly endurance through it. That is one of the most powerful messages evangelically we can hold out to the world. And it's a way that we grow in faith and, and God can do all kinds of things through that. But if God, it, these men that pen the New Testament, do you know what happened to them? They were all tortured and murdered. All of them were tortured and murdered. They lost friends and family, jobs, careers, everything they had going for them. They wandered around from town to town being hated, kicking out of, uh, kicking out of one place, going to another, declaring the message of God, and again being hated by it over and over. And yet, in our prosperity heresy, we feel like, no, God loves us different. Uh, the prosperity gospel loves to quote verses like Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29, 11. What's that say? I, I know the plans I have for you, declared the, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. They're plans for good and not for harm. Jeremiah 29, 11. Name it and claim it. Now, I love Jeremiah 29, 11. However, we recognize that you can't just cherry pick a Bible verse and be like, yep, that's for me. I'm like, well, pump the brakes there, hot shot. That was written... But, you know, it was delivered from a messenger to a certain people at a certain time enduring a certain thing. This is a historical quote. And if you're going to cherry pick scriptures, they run to something like Jeremiah 29, 11. Let's take a quick gander at Jeremiah 18, 11. It says, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. It says the opposite. Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 11, Jeremiah 18, 11. And it's like, well, which one? I'm like, well, both. You got to do a little more homework. You don't just grab a verse, plaster it over your doorway at your house and be like, yeah, everything's going to go awesome. Woo! I do whatever the hell I want and Jesus is going to bless it. Rock on. No suffering ever. God wants to make me wealthy. I'm going to drive a, a swank sports car and everything's going to go great with me. No suffering, no pain. And it's a lie. It's a lie. And it's the prosperity heresy. Yet people love that idea. People love the concept of, hey, if you come to church, 
we're going to have a big celebration. We're not going to say anything you don't like. And we're going to tell you how God wants to give you a new sports car and a huge 401k plan. Who's with me? Free snacks after church. Woo! Yeah, of course. It's like all of a sudden all of our ears are itchy of like, I got a free donut at Grace City. There was no car. There was no talk of 401k plans. I would rather have the, the, the 401 than the, than the donut. By the way, that's, that's kind of a jerk thing. Those are awesome donuts. And my bride, my wife picked them up. So how dare you? Let, let's give my wife a round of applause. She gets donuts for us every single week. That's great. Baby, I'm not, I'm not with them. It's me and you. I would come here, not the prosperity. I want the donuts. So I come here for the donuts mostly. I like preaching, but mainly donuts. All right, here we go. That's the prosperity gospel. The second one, I'll call it the libertine gospel. The, the libertine heresy is better. And that's God is, God loves you. They're really good about saying those verses. God loves you. Uh, but whereas they, they say a true thing, God loves you, God loves us, they don't think God is holy. God is loving, but God is not holy. God doesn't hate sin. He's okay with it. In fact, God made me just the way I am. And so however I am is good with God. And so if God, uh, put, God makes me a certain way, let's say I have an impulse, I have a desire, uh, and, you know, I have some weird form of sexuality or identity that I want to practice, because God made me that way, it's okay to do. And God doesn't care because God's loving, right? Well, the problem is, it's like, well, we're all, we're all dead in our sin. The whole point is, is no, you're sinful. How many of you taught your kids to hoard their toys and not to share them? Don't share your toys, son. No, in fact, every single one who's had kids have had to teach your kids through painstaking labor, mind you. Share your toys. All of you have to do that. Why? It's because all you little kids in the back, you're born selfish. All of you. Oh, you're born selfish. There's, there's mama bird impulses in the room right now. It's like, oh, no, not my angel. Yes, your angel is selfish, just like you. And we have to learn how to love Jesus. That's exactly what's happening. No one teaches them to hoard. You all teach them how to share, and they don't really pull it off. They get older, and then they, they become experts at hoarding all of our money and not giving any of it away. We're not generous. We have to work really, really hard. If you think you're the exception, let me see your bank account. Right? And it's like, okay, no, you do your thing, man. You do your thing. No, we're getting better, aren't we? I don't want to shame you. I want to, well, unless it's good, you know, unless it's good, then we'll do a little bit, but not a whole lot. We're going to get better together, you and I, aren't we? We're going to be more and more like Jesus tomorrow than we were today. Forgetting what lays behind, we're going to focus on the future to what Jesus has in store for us. And so rock on. The libertines, they love to uh, focus on how God loves them and everything that you may do is good. So if God made me selfish, it's okay to be selfish forever. God, I came out selfish, so by the same logic, I can remain selfish forever because I started that way, right? Same thing with identity or sexuality. God made me this way, so I get to act on any impulse just as if I had a reason to be selfish for life. You get it? No, the whole point is to deny the impulses, exchange those through the power of a transformed life by the Holy Spirit to change our bad impulses for holy, cure, uh, holy and pure impulses. That's it. We have to fight against the flesh. And so that's the whole gig. Uh, they love to quote out the don't judge. Don't ju judge not lest you be judged. And so they put that up like a shield as if we're not allowed to say anything. Uh, and we will deal with that some other time. If you would like to just completely, utterly crush that, you can look at the end of 1 Corinthians 5, and it will shock you to your core, and you'll find out, oh, the church is actually supposed to judge the church. You're actually supposed to do this. The outsiders, you don't judge, but we actually do have some judgment to do upon each other, you know? Uh, one of you guys in our congregation who belongs to us, falls off the wagon and are engaging in just something horrible and vile, we're supposed to see that, recognize what it actually is, and get involved in your life to be able to pull you back toward God and away from the thing that is destroying you. 
What we're not supposed to do is the hateful thing. And that's be like, yeah, go ahead, do nuts, whatever. I'm not supposed to say anything. I'm like, nope, that's somebody who really sucks at Bible and doesn't love them enough to risk offending them and leaving them in their sin. That is not what we're supposed to do as Christians. And it is a lie uh, when we back off that. So we've got prosperity. We've got libertine. Let's look at another one. And let's just say all the religions and the cults. Uh, well, religion, there's the Jewish religion, and still the indictment of Stephen hangs over uh, the Jewish nation. You have killed the prophets. You have killed the messengers of God time and time again. His critique then is still just as fresh today. And they did murder Jesus, who forgave them, by the way. And if you've been forgiven by Christ, we should forgive them as well. So don't jump into the social media throng. Nothing, I mean... Hating Israel is really popular right now, and so everyone's jumping on that. Like, nope, we love all the countries, we love all the peoples, we don't give a flying rip what color you are or what dialect. We don't care. Every per every person under the sun made by God, and we would like to tell you about the greatness of Jesus Christ, and we don't really care about anything else. Your identity or your your culture, your nation. I don't care. I don't care. Just, hey, I'm a man, changed by Jesus, love to be able to tell you about him. That's it. He's all, all welcome. All, all welcome. Despite all the chastisement we get online, all the caricatures of Christians that they set up. I can't find any Christians in any of our congregations that are guilty of what we're slandered about in the public square. It's promulgated on online sources. This is what Christians are like. And many times it gets traction because no one actually knows you. They don't know you like I do. They don't know real Christians. And so we, messengers of God, need to be able to hold out a different hope. Religions and cults. Here's how to recognize a cult. A cult is something where it gives you certain doctrines and then it hides others. That's what cult means. It means hidden. And so the idea is, hey, sign up with us, hang out with us. And then once you're in it, then you start finding out all kinds of other pieces. But you can tell a cult, you can tell any uh, different religion by going directly to what they say about Jesus. That's how you tell. You don't have to do a big study on what cult and figure out whatever. All you have to do is say, who is Jesus and how do you receive salvation? For us, it's as narrow as this. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us who, who came, lived a perfect life, died in our place, and he is the only name given under heaven which men must be saved by. Jesus is the only way to salvation. And it is by grace, through faith, and not by works, so no one can brag about it that we receive salvation. That's our gospel. That's our Jesus. And you can tell a cult by anyone that says something different. It's like Jesus plus you got to do a bunch of good stuff. And I'm like, nope, that's not it. Uh, or you have to live a certain kind of life. I'm like, nope, it's really grace by faith alone. Now, when we have works, it's something that happens because we've been changed. We don't do works to get into heaven. We do works because we're changed and redeemed people. If you Real faith does good works. Cool? Uh, so you can always tell the religions and the different cults by that. I have lots more to say on it, but we got to go, guys. We got to go. Y'all are getting bogged down. Uh, the last one, the fourth one is universalism. This is all the rage and it feels so tolerant, but it makes absolutely no sense. Universalism says something like this. Whatever you believe is great. Whatever you believe, you're right. And whatever you believe, you're also right. All roads ultimately lead to God. So you got a weird religion. You got a different religion as well. I've got something. You're not religious at all, but you try to be a good person. We're doing just fine. This one is particularly difficult, and it's reserved for our moment in time, the postmodern era, because we are the dumbest logicians and philosophers to ever grace this planet. Postmoderns are people who don't believe there is such a thing as absolute truth. So we can hold two contradictory beliefs, which is in logic it's called uh, the uh, law of identity is being done and the law of non-contradiction. We immediately are like, let's break logic, and we're somehow still okay with it. It's because our minds are built so that we're fine to have illogical ideas. 
We contradictory beliefs. No problem for the modern man. The difficulty with this is the moment someone says there are no absolute truths, you, you are saying an absolute truth, aren't you? There's at least one absolute truth. And that's, there are no absolute truths. So you could just be like, hey, are you, are you absolutely sure there's no absolute truths? <laughs> Calculus, carry the one. Oh, I'm an idiot. Got it. No, you can't. Right? The problem is, is to deny the law of non-contradiction is to uphold it at the same time. If you use logic to attack logic, you have to use it as self-defeating argument. You can't do that. Right? Uh, the way that logic works, the way our world is built, is truth is by definition narrow and exclusive. The universalists don't like that because they'll be like, you, Christian, out of all the thousands of religions, you claim that you alone have the right religion. That's, a, that's awfully arrogant and presumptuous of you. Wow, how could you say that? And you could say, you know what? I think that two plus two equals four. And, and really, there, it, it's not three or five. And this isn't fair because there's an infinite amount of other numbers, you know, so close-minded of math. That's why I hate math. It's so close-minded. Two plus two equals four. There's an infinite amount of other options, yet it's only four. That's so close-minded. That's so near. No, it's how truth works. That's, that's just how reality is knit. You have a certain number of hairs on your head. Not one less, not, not, not more. Pastor Chris has zero hairs on his head. Look at that. You can't have one and none. I love you, Pastor Chris. <laughs> Very good. Truth is by definition narrow and exclusive. We could logically uphold that all religions are false, or one religion is true and the others are false, but all religions cannot possibly be all correct. Right? These are the coexist stickers. They don't recognize that the, the C for Islam wants to eat all the other religions, right? Islam wants to pack man through the O exist, you know? Like, nope, you can't do that. This, these things are not playing well, and all you're betraying is the idea that you are a peace-loving hippie that has no idea about any of these religions or how logic in itself uh, works. Um, so universalism, all roads lead to God. A lot of times these are, these are the New Agers. They'll defy the category because nothing so New Age is claiming no category, categories. Uh, but they're the folks uh, that will believe in like God is an energy around us. There's a divine spark within us as well. So oftentimes they're doing that. So guys, in review, we've talked about spotting, identifying a few ways we can see the real messengers of God. And then we've also seen some of the things that the teachers, that people with their itching ears gather around themselves. Tell us we'll be rich if we follow God. Tell me whatever I believe is right and I'm getting salvation anyway. Tell me my religion's right. Tell me I can do whatever I want to do. And because God loves me, there'll be no recourse. He doesn't care about sin. He's not a good judge. He'll let us off. Let's jump back in the text now. We're going to go in verse 55. And so we're closing this thing down. But let's look at Welcome Grace City Church first. Just look at it. That is fantastic. You see that we went big on the G and the Y. It kind of helps frame it in there. Some people think I'm stalling. Oh, well, I do. All right, hey, turn to your Bibles. So I'm going to have, in truth, I, I'm pretty upset about this. And I'm going to talk to the guy who put these slides together. Me and him are going to have a heart-to-heart -heart in the mirror. <laughs> and I'm going to... I'm not going to go easy on him. So pray for, pray for those two. Pray for those two dudes. And we'll appreciate it. Now, when they heard these things, so Stephen is done speaking now, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open. And check it out, guys. This is so cool. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Whenever you see the Son of Man at the right hand of God, what's he always doing? Sitting. sitting. But he's standing at the right hand of God. 
But they cried out with a loud voice, stopped up their ears, rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, I'm not going to get, um, let's stop right there because we, that's our cliffhanger. Uh, and I want to pause on Stephen's death. Stephen went out well, didn't he? Uh, He he died an epic death. And furthermore, he goes on, uh, he cries out, Lord, receive my spirit. He falls to his knees, cries out with a loud voice. Check out what Stephen says and see if it's not familiar. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. So he was killed. That's a good death, guys. That is a good death. And he died worshiping. And his murderers, he'd done nothing wrong. And his murderers there... He blessed them and forgave them just like Jesus did. Holy cow. How many of you would like to die a death like that? Now, that's kind of sticky because I'm like, he fell asleep, as Bibles speak for. They hit him with 300 sharp, jagged stones in the face and the hands and the chest. It's an ouchy way to go of like, who wants to be tortured to death? It's not a fun thing. Uh, but we're like, yeah, stone me to death. It's like, that doesn't sound super great. Here's, here's the thing. A lot of us are holding too tightly onto life, thinking tacitly in the back of our heads that the big goal is to live as long as you can in absolute comfort with no pain and not meet an early uh, end. And that's not true. I believe we, like Stephen, like Jesus, like all the disciples, like anyone who dies well, is to find a cause and you go all in for it. It's to die well. And here's the kicker. If you're not thinking ever about, hey, how do I make sure I die well? That legacy, that that ability to usher straight into heaven and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, to not play the part of the coward and shy away from that destiny which God has called us out for, but to courageously, boldly step forward and to be able to step into the role that God may call us to, to have uh, a noble, good, and epic death for the name of our Savior who died for us. If we're not thinking about that, I don't believe it's really possible for us to live well. If you're not thinking about dying well, make no mistake, you're certainly not think you're not uh, doing well about living well. Dying well is much easier than living well. And so that's exactly what we would like to do. We want to be able to think about the end, what is most important, and if we're truly careening toward that ultimate way that we go out. It may not be a hail of stones going at it. It may be a very long life, maybe a short life. I don't know. It's not really your business what the Lord has for you. Our only business is, is to be ready. And in being ready for death, we actually can do life well. That's how we do it. As the Lord directs our steps and we are pumped with however he goes. I want to close with this. God has created all of us with a meticulous, incredible design. He's imbued us with uh, consciences, and He is constantly speaking to us. One is He's spoken through the awe and wonder. Psalm 19 and Romans 1 says, The skies declare the glory of God. And every time you see a sunset through the airplane last night, Uh, My boys and I looked out through the airplane window and it looked like the sky was on fire. Just deep reds over an endless horizon. And we were led to worship. They're just amazing, incredible. And you look at something like that, awe-inspiring beauty and wonder, and you say there is a God. There is a maker. A creation calls out there is a creator. The Lord speaks And the skies themselves are his messenger. God sends blessings, doesn't he? Us who do not deserve blessing, God sends us blessings. And those blessings are little messengers that God loves us and cares about us to woo us toward himself. God also brings us sufferings. And this is a blessing as well because it drives us to our knees and it causes the sinner to call out, Help me, Father! Help me, God! 
So sufferings are a tremendous blessing that God also gives us. Our blessings are messengers. Our sufferings are also messengers. Furthermore, God sent us actual messengers in the prophets, in the apostles, in the preachers. He sends us messengers. And still, He writes us a letter. He gives it to us here so we can have all instructions for life of godliness. We don't have to wonder. God's written it down. Have we rejected the messengers of God? Have we, have we even bothered to read his message? If God wrote you a letter, would you just say, that's awfully thoughtful. Maybe one day I'll get to this. And you drop it and go on with whatever show you're watching. <laughs> the audacity that God would write us a letter and we wouldn't read it. God has given us his word. Uh, and very last, he himself came as a messenger, loved us, died for us, and rescued us. How cool is that, guys? Now, our goal, we recognize Scripture calls us ambassadors of Christ. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be true messengers of God. And so what we do in, with this sermon is we look at the real ways we identify messengers, and we take that and uh, the appearances, the message that we have on our lips and what other people, friends, family, neighbors, co-workers hear from us. That's the message they hear from us. And then our outward life. And we take that and we lay it over ourselves and say, where would the Lord have us grow? Is it you're a coward and you're not speaking the truth to people desperately needing it? Is that where it is? Or, or is there some list that we put up there from uh, the book of Romans that we read, the outward display of the, the Christian life that we're not measuring up with? I have mine. I know exactly where I need to grow. I need, I, I need to be worked on, right? Furthermore, we need to be aware of what the heresies are in this world. What are the false teachings that people desire to be right, where we take our itching ears and we gather for ourselves false messengers of God? If you don't know what the false messengers are, perhaps we or people we care about will be seduced by those false messages, right? And so beware, believer. Spring people from the false messengers and be a true messenger yourself. Sounds good? You guys with me? I love it. Now is for a cliffhanger. So imagine if we were a movie. The credits just rolled, dun, 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 action music, bum, 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 bum. credits change. Now there's the end teaser. Sounds good. And this is for next week. I'm going to read it and I'm not going to elaborate on it. All right. It just said, um, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Acts 7 verse 58. Now we're going to pop down and read just a few verses and then I'm going to just go, uh. Say nothing, and you're going to come back next week. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But check it out, guys. Oh, so much rides on this. So much to say here. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison.